I've got no common sense, and neither has nobody else. I spread my brains out on the table and poke them about with a fork. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Do you remember his name? Because I have a funny feeling I've yeah. heard this guy. It's uh, Ivor Cutler. Okay. No, no, I totally, I think I've heard that before. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you so much for opening up the show that way. Yeah. Really uh, glad that you're on the show. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for making the time. Where, where are you located? I'm in Peterborough, Ontario. Okay. So just uh, between Toronto and Ottawa. Okay, great. So we got Chris Magwood here from Builders for Climate Action. He's the founder, director, and the website is uh, www.buildersforclimateaction.org. And you can reach his email at uh, chris at buildersforclimateaction.org. And also he's part of the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is rmi.org. And you can find Builders for Climate Action all over social media. You guys are all over Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all the players, yep. everybody. Yep. Jen does a great job of making sure we show You guys, up. like, I, I will say one thing before we get started. Like, you guys, you guys offer up a lot of information, man. Like, a lot, which is great. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we both come from uh, an education background. So, Builders for Climate Action kind of comes out of a, uh, a school called the Endeavor Center that started about 15 years ago. And so, the idea was to be you know, open source about everything we did and everything we learned. So that, that right from the get-go, the idea was share all the, the good stuff and the bad stuff and uh, let those lessons learned go further than just, you know, us and our projects. It's well it's well appreciated. Thank you very much that you guys are doing that. And uh, I, I really enjoyed going through the website and looking at all the information. So it's always a learning. You can learn so much from your website, which is great, and everything you guys are sharing. Let me do a quick shout-out to Chris from Richardson Electrical Services. Uh, Chris and his dad do an amazing work. You can reach him on his IG account, which is Richardson underscore electrical underscore services. Their number to reach them is 437-227-3621. And his email is Chris at Richardson richardsonelectrical.ca and the website to reach them is also at www.richardsonelectrical.ca and hear his story right here on this show on show number 352 thanks chris um where do we want to begin here chris how did why did you get into this segment of the industry well i am um, i've been a residential design builder for about 25 years um and got my start by building my own house first for myself and my family, which uh, was the first permitted straw bale house in uh, Ontario, Canada. I didn't anticipate a career. I anticipated building a house and then moving on with my life. But it turns out that I, I loved building and I loved that style of building. And all kinds of people just started coming out of the woodwork when the house was finished and kind of asking me to help them do it too and so you know it turned from a from an interest to a career and so you know i've been always really interested we chose that way of, of building for that house because at the time you know i was really concerned about energy efficiency and affordability and the toxicity of building materials and you know a whole bunch of stuff and uh and at the time you know doing that straw bale house seemed to answer all of those questions and, uh, you know, ever since I've been, you know, I've been the person who's willing to try the new thing that nobody else wants to try yeah. and, uh, and see how it goes. And so, you know, it's, it's made for, uh, for a really interesting career. 
but I'm doing the the carbon footprint stuff now because about well, I guess over 10 years ago now, we had developed a, a system in the business of trying to be able to quantify everything for our clients. So wanting, you know, if we're saying, well, we build energy efficient homes, we want to be able to measure it and say, this energy efficient, you know, compared to, you know, something else. If we were trying to build something non-toxic, we wanted to, you know, actually quantify which materials did and didn't have what kinds of chemicals. So really into measuring things. And so at one point we thought, well, we should know the carbon footprint of all of these building materials. That's something we should also be measuring. And at the time, when I tried to do that, I just ran into a lot of kind of dead ends and information voids. But I got really interested in trying to figure that out. And so it just happens that my own interest and the kind of growth of that sort of information um, happened at the same time. And so I just got involved when lots of other people were getting involved and you know was able to do some some work and some projects to help figure this out specifically for the kind of low-rise residential industry there was more interest from architects and engineers of big buildings but nobody was really looking at at homes very much and so i was able to kind of put my knowledge of how to design and build homes together with this research on on uh, understanding the carbon footprint of materials i just realized chris i mean have we crossed paths before? Because I'm wondering if, did you ever attend the Blue Green Group or did you ever um, speak with uh, Greg um, Greg LaBelle or uh, oh, yeah. Sherman? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah I, yeah. Th- yeah, I think we've totally, because in my early years of construction, I was fascinated by it and I don't, I still don't know how I came across Chris or Shervin. And, but I, I think I was introduced to them some way and I was fascinated by what they were sharing, which reminded me of what you were just sharing right now. And um, there aren't a lot of people doing it. And I guess my question is, um, when did you build that first house? How far back are we talking about? That would have been in 1996. Okay, so we're talking a few years here. Yep. Where did where did you get your information? Because even when I was having, when I was going to their boots on the ground events, I was like, this is amazing that you guys are getting all these people together and we're having these conversations and we're talking about these details that nobody else is talking about on a regular construction site. We're building traditionally and we're just attacking it the same way that we always do. But I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by people actually engaging in this stimulating conversation about building a different way. Mm-hmm. So how Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what that's what got me, you know, so involved and so deeply involved is that at the time, people definitely all over North America, but also all over the world who are kind of figuring the straw bale thing out, were not just figuring it out, but talking to each other a lot, you know, very early internet kind of listservs were were a big source of information. Um, For a bunch of years, there was actually an international straw bale conference being held in different parts of the world. And you know, you'd go and you'd meet all these people from all over the world doing, you know, doing this thing. And and doing it in a way that really was, you know, you talked about open source at the beginning. Like I've never met a community that shares more than that straw bale community. They like do. somebody might might have messed up a building completely. Like the whole thing might have, you know, rotted. And they'll they would just tell you what happened and why and and how they fixed it. And and so my my whole introduction to to the building world was people being really honest about that stuff. And and I was you know, I think a bit naive when I started getting more into the mainstream construction, 
I thought you just talked like that with people all the time. <laughs> said, no, 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 you don't, Chris. <laughs> no, apparently no, not. No. But, uh, There's some good magicians in this industry. They like to hide a bunch of stuff. Uh, yeah. But you're totally right. That that passive side of the industry, they don't they they because they want to problem solve. They really mm -hmm. want to learn and cause an effect of what happens as a result of doing certain details. Because mm -hmm. there's so many people around the world that are trying these details out, right? And yeah. I really wish, I'm sure you guys are trying to do this, more and more would do it here, right here in Canada. I would love to yeah. see more projects that are coming up this way. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing about working with a material like straw bale is it's, I mean, people get this sense that, oh, it's really vulnerable or it's really, you know, moisture prone or things like that. It's actually incredibly resilient. You know, 25 years later, there are hardly any examples of issues, but that wall system speaks to you very loudly when it has an issue, right? Like, yes, yeah. You know, your, your plaster is your air barrier and your final finish. And so if there's moisture, you see it on yes. the plaster. Like you see those failures in real time or not even, you see them before their failures, which is nice, right? It's like, hey, there's a weird damp patch here. Like what's going on? Oh, look, there's air going through the electrical outlet on the other side. It's, you know, moisture loading this one place. I better air seal that. Like, so it, it just, you know, everybody doing that, that, that kind of building realized all of these building science lessons really quickly and in a really critical way, you know, like you couldn't, you couldn't ignore those things. Those dark patches aren't hidden behind some siding and behind a, you know, a, a, you know, air barrier paper yeah. or something like that. Really, it's like, yeah, really talk about a house breathing. You can literally see yeah. lungs expanding like a house, a home's lungs. And that's mm -hmm. what I liked about it. You're, you're, you're a hundred percent right. How quickly did you start analyzing your build after you built it? Immediately. Like, okay. because in order to get our permit, we had to convince the building department that it wasn't going to rot. So, I had had to track down anybody who had done testing, uh, either like in situ or lab testing. And basically all of the tests that I could show, um, the building official at that time said, you know, as long as as long as you you're controlling air movement through this wall system, it's incredibly resilient. It can handle all kinds of, you know, highs and lows in humidity and temperature. Um, so, you know, it was baked in right away that that air tightness was critical, but also seeing this, the value of something that's airtight, but vapor permeable, you know, I had to learn that, like literally before I learned how to be a carpenter. So before I knew how to nail two pieces of wood together, uh, you know, to get my permit, I was already having to learn these building science lessons that in 1996 were not. No, like, not even a conversation. Yeah, nobody was talking about this except people doing these weird natural building things. And so uh, it was it was a fascinating sort of like step into the world of building science almost before it was called building science. You know? <laughs> it's um, interesting, Chris, that you say that the building department was asking you to prove that your structure will not rot, which is a question that I think should be asked of today's building industry. All the time, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. never been asked. It's yeah. never brought up. And, and yeah. I'm like, why isn't it? Because I'm sorry to say, even though we're building to the minimum standards of the Ontario Building Code, sometimes it's not installed or built properly, and it actually starts to create 
rot. It starts to create deficiencies. And then they don't ask that question about it. They just automatically assume, well, you, you meet the criteria. You've actually achieved certain hurdles. So we assume that the house is perfectly fine, which is that mm -hmm. question should be asked all the time. Yeah, asked all the time. And I mean, to be honest, I don't know why in Ontario, you still don't have to do a blower door test. Like, I think that should be mandatory on every yeah. single, you build a shed, I want to see a blower door yeah. test. Like, yeah. I, I totally, I, I agree. Find, find those spots. Like, yes. if there's going to be a problem, it's going to be where that air is leaking during the blower door test. So figure that out now before it's buried and fix it. it. It's and, the most cost-effective you know. and efficiency-effective way to yeah. build a structure. Yeah. We learned from that. I remember the very first time I did a blower door test and I was fascinated. I thought I did well, uh, but I was fascinated by all the holes that they found. And I was like, what's with you guys? Why do you guys keep on? Well, we're just, the house is telling us where the holes are. That's all it is. We're just, yeah. and then the whole you know education process of negative pressure and everything like that. And I was like, now mm -hmm. I get it. Now I totally understand yeah. it. And I'll, I'll be back. I'm gone with my caulking gun now. See you later. I, I, I got a lot of work to do. So no, no, I, I totally agree with you. You think they'll ever throw that into the code? Uh, it was it was proposed here in Ontario and then kind of you know shot down by the industry. But I think I think yes, it will end Eventually. up in there sooner or later. Yeah. So what are some of the major lessons that you learned building your first house and some things that you would do differently today if you had an opportunity to rebuild it again? Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually did have the house I'm in now is my second straw bale house, so I did have an opportunity nice. to uh, to to How try it all over again. Uh, what was that? How old is that one? Uh, it is going into its 12th year now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lots of lessons. Uh, air tightness is a big one. You like you said, you, you learn quickly. And the, the amazing thing about doing a blower door test is you not only figure out where the problem is this time on this house, but like how you're going to not even have that problem next time. It's like, you know, that running around with the caulking gun is great way to fix it at the time, but you know, what, what we tried to do is like, okay, let's anticipate that and do the thing that means we're not going to run around with the caulking gun on that one. So by the time we built this house, um, you know, this is a, a, a straw bale house with natural plasters on the walls and it, it blew a 0 0.8, um, oh, wow. in 2012, like that was, <laughs> we were pretty huge. proud of that result. Yeah, that's and that's, you know, that's a natural building system that, you know, I think a lot of people would assume either you can't get that airtight or you, like, how are you going to do that? Well, it took 10 years, but we figured out how to do that to the point where, you know, we can, we can sort of replicate that pretty easily now. And then what are the numbers like? I mean, cause I'm sure that you're analyzing everything and you're trying to factor in your consumption uh, for operating the house. And, and I mean, like, do people start to understand that this is a viable option? for building when they start looking at these numbers? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the thing that mostly stops it from being a viable option is just the, you know, it's still this kind of unique one-off material. And, you know, in our practice, we, we sort of played around as a bit selling it short, but, you know, we, we prefabricated the wall system a lot of times, but we only did it for our projects. I think if, if you could, if you could buy this system, more people would use it. But the fact is, if you want a, a straw bale house right now, you're kind of into finding a, a specialized contractor. And, you know, um, there's one here in Peterborough. She's booked, you know, two, three years in advance now. So, wow, you know, just the, the labor pool just 
isn't there for the kind of custom builds and the the, the product solution isn't there. Uh, in Europe, it is. There's three different companies in Europe that make really slick prefabricated straw bale systems, um, but it just hasn't you know made its way here yet. No corporations have jumped on here in Canada, and I mean, I'm just no. I, that's kind of sad to hear. Yeah, they just don't see the. I don't even want to say it, but I guess they don't see the value in it. Like homeowners in generally, don't, they don't want this. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the market is a funny thing in in the home building world. People are always like, "Well, don't homeowners want this?" Homeowners don't get a choice. You know, it's I true. mean, the developers build communities. They build them the way that they would like to build them for their own sort of efficiencies and costs and all of that kind of stuff. But what the homeowner is choosing is a countertop and you know uh, a flooring option in the foyer. You know, it's not it's not really there's not much homeowner choice driving the the, the new homes market. So, um, and you know, I, I understand why a large developer wouldn't move to something like this. They're going to switch a whole bunch of things in their supply chain, switch a whole bunch of things in the way they do the buildings and the people they need on site. To sell a house at the exact same price to the exact same person, you know, it I, there I, isn't there isn't enough of an advantage to um, to to you know tempt somebody to make what would be like a huge change in 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 procedure for a for a large home builder. I mean, I would I would love to tackle a straw bale house one day just to experience it because I think it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to actually swing the hammer. You've done it twice now, so you you totally understand what I'm talking about. Oh, I've done it like forty times. Oh, <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, I would love to experience that, but it's just I, I also like seeing the young homeowners that they start talking to me about energy consumption on their track builds or, or they mm -hmm. took over a house that's and they remodeled it or did something to it. And then I just look at their numbers of the usage and utility and I was like, guys, what, what's wrong with you? And I'm doing little things in my own place and I'm seeing my utility and I'm showing it to them. And I'm like, guys, I'm a fraction of what you guys are doing because I'm just trying to do what I can. I'm taking a typical suburban house and trying to do what I possibly can to add more efficiency to it so then I don't need to consume. And I I walk around my neighborhood and all I hear is air conditioning units going on right now. Mm -hmm. And it frustrates yeah. me. It totally frustrates me to hear that. And I have yet to turn mine on this year and it's probably not going to turn on for a little while. So then I'm not using that power. And it's the same thing with the straw bale. Like the, you design yeah. a house a certain way that mother nature works with you and not against you. And that's yeah. the biggest lesson that you can learn. Even, even really basic things like, you know, uh, good, passive solar shading on the windows yes. like why it why isn't the air conditioning on in this house it's not the magic insulation it's there's an an overhang over the south windows that means summer sun isn't coming in those windows so the building's not overheating and uh you know i just don't need it and then yet in the winter the sun's low enough that it's getting full on into those windows and i'm picking up all the all the you know that the, the solar gain from, from that that cost nothing. It wasn't high tech. It wasn't, you know, if, if I were to rewrite the Ontario building code, that would be my first line. It's like, show me how this building interacts with the sun. Cause that's the thing. That's where all the energy comes from. That's, you know, that's what you want in the winter and don't want in the summer. And, you know, the number of buildings you see going up where they've got, you know, a massive South or West bank of windows, just, you, know, you already know so how that all in all summer. I know, yeah. I know. 
have you have you guys i don't know if you guys have but have you guys tried to work with the government are they on board with some of this stuff or it's just not the media soundbite that they want to use right now yeah i haven't i haven't really taken part in the in the sort of codes writing building world uh here in canada so no, not really. I, you know, until fairly recently, until all of this, the the sort of um, carbon footprint stuff that I'm doing now, you know, we were very much, you know, over in our own little world of high performance natural building. It's a pretty small place and it didn't feel like there was much conversation happening with codes folks or, or you know, the mainstream construction world. And I think that's really started to change in the last five years because of, you know, the focus on climate, because people are starting to realize, oh, like toxic building materials make people sick. And, you know, that's a real thing. And, you know, people are trying to be more energy efficient. And it feels like, you know, that that sort of mainstream world has caught up to where that high performance natural building world started. You know, that's that, those are all the goals that we had 25 years ago and have kind of really refined and and in some ways perfected now. Um, and it's, it's kind of exciting that we're starting to have those conversations with, with the mainstream, but it's not, um, it's fairly recent that that's started to happen. I do. I do love that. I am seeing a lot more younger builders, younger tradespeople having this conversation mm-hmm. and engaging with this conversation and they're seeing the value attached to it. And so that's really important. I would love for you to share with the listeners about certain, um, materials that you like that's on your beautiful grocery list of products that you like using or even some products that you have used that maybe not necessarily didn't work out perfectly but still learn something from it but uh, I do like hearing about certain products and I want to learn more about different products that you've used you come across if you can share some of those sure yeah I mean it's you know I think in the work I've done there's a, a sort of mix between products like the, a thing you can go and buy and materials that you kind of go get the raw stuff and make your own thing out of you yes. know like is straw bale a product not really you got to go find a farmer and you know <laughs> buy the straw so it's yeah. it's a material so a lot of things are like that you know i've done a lot of work with earthen based materials um i love earthen floors i think everybody who's ever walked on one wants one immediately um, they're beautiful incredible like it's just hard to describe how good they feel under your feet. But again, you know, that's you go get some dirt and you and you you know come up with a mix for that dirt and you you know and you lay it. But it's not it's not really a product. So there's that whole side of things: the the plasters and the and the clay floors and the straw bale and hempcrete and all of these things that are sort of more make it yourself stuff. But I feel again like those worlds are somewhat starting to come together. Um, there are places that make a hemp bat insulation now. Uh, there's a Canadian company called Nature Fibers, and then there's Hempitecture in the U.S. What an amazing thing! It's like it's everything that I would want from my straw bale in terms of it's healthy, it's natural, but it's also a bat insulation. And and it and for an installer of a bat, it's actually a really good bat insulation. It's it's really like firm and square and cuts really cleanly and installs really neatly and so there's you know there's starting to be some really interesting crossovers like that graphenstone paint is another one like we've yep. mixed our own lime paints for ages 
and now it's like, oh, Graffensoft makes this thing. You can just buy it. And it comes in a can. And, you know, somebody rolls it on. And and so, yeah, more and more, there's there's these, you know, great crossovers where where the kind of like the things that we've been trying to achieve in the natural building world are starting to show up as as actual products that, that you can go and buy and install. Are you guys having, I mean, because I know that certain trades there are far and few that would actually handle this kind of work, especially like the plastering and things like that. Certain details. Are you guys having a difficult find difficult finding the trades to do the work themselves? Yeah. I mean, we just do the stuff that is different in house. Okay. Like we're not typically trying to, to find a trade to do it. If we're going to deal with a natural paint or a plaster, that's us because okay. Are you, are you educating other people so they can get, because I mean, eventually you guys won't always, I've always thought about my exit. I'm trying to figure out, I want to just pass yeah. on the knowledge so then somebody else could take it over. But I, I, I could see certain people only embracing these techniques, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jen and I, you know, ran the Endeavor School for 10 years and that, that was that attempt. It's like, how do we replace ourselves? Well, let's you know, teach a group of students every year. So that's for 10 years. That's the the projects we did. We did with a group of students. They kind of joined us at the start and they were there with us to the finish. And so they got to see those, uh, you know, all of those materials, all of those techniques. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Some of those students went on to specialize in one thing. Like there are a couple of people who came through Endeavor who do now specialize just in natural paints and plasters. You know, they, they saw all the different parts of the build and they're like, this is what I like. Or, you know, there's a couple of people who do, um, you know, solar and renewable energy installations because that's the piece they liked. Um, and actually more people coming out of Endeavor did that, like picked a, a specialty trade. We thought we were going to kind of turn out more general contractor types, you know, who would, who would do the whole house. And, and actually the people doing that were few and far between, but, uh, but people really did sort of pick up and and sort of run with lots of of little sub trades but our our you know student base for that was pretty international so it you know you would get 15 or 20 people come for a season but then they poof they spread out all over the world and it's not like here in ontario there was suddenly a glut of of people you know there, so it's still it's still fairly few and far between in terms it's of growing. It's growing. It's good to hear that it's growing somewhat. That you're getting more and more of a generation that actually is conscious about building better, much better yeah. than the, you know what what typically everybody's talking about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about the numbers, like the cost. I know you mentioned earlier that it's almost the same. It's very similar. Um, when you're building at that point where it's brand new construction, are we very close on the cost numbers? regarding just oh, yeah. building it. Yeah, we're yeah. very close, right? That's what I thought. Yeah. Using digital platforms in our industry is becoming more common, especially among the young folks, because it improves efficiency, prevents mistakes, and overall makes our lives as contractors easier. This is why we partnered with Connect Team, a platform built to manage, train, and communicate with your team. Connect Team's desktop version gives managers a live overview of the business to track work hours, create schedules, make sure the business meets compliance, and so much more. Employees just download the app to their mobile to clock in and out, share safety reports, and get updates all in one place, ensuring they've got what they need to perform at their best. Connect Team has a free plan and a 14-day free trial. Try them today by checking out the link in the show notes. Yeah, especially especially when we're, we're even if you're doing like on-site prefabrication, you know, we realize that one great way to do straw bale walls is just on-site tip-up panels. We spent 
15 years bringing all these bales and stacking them in place and then trying to plaster in place and working against gravity. And we realized, oh, if you make the whole thing lying down, just like a framer would, but you're doing a bit more, you do the plaster and the insulation and everything and then stand the thing up, the time goes way, way down. So, um, you know, I think on the wall system, the, the time and the cost is is as good as or or better than than anything out there. The rest of the stuff, you know, it really depends. Some some of the things do cost more. I mean, as soon as you stick renewable energy on a building, the price is going up. So if that's part of it, um, that's always going to show up in the in the final cost. And it's more this the systems based stuff. Are you doing rainwater catchment yeah. and and sort of filtration and use? It's a great thing to do, but it's always going to be more expensive than just you know hooking up to the city. Um, sometimes the paints and finishes, if you're purchasing them rather than making them yourself, they can be a bit more. But you know, by and large, what we found was that the the margin of of difference in price between the way we were building and anybody else would build, you can absorb that in a fancy countertop. Yeah, you know I mean, like it's you're kind of talking in the sort of like. 10 thousand dollar range on a house so it's not you know it's not a, a huge bend one way or the other and certainly somebody who's being budget conscious could do a really good kind of high performance natural build and, and end up in the same you know the same uh, ballpark as as a more conventional one yeah because i mean i'm trying to think of what what kind of a square footage size are we talking about for you to build what, what are the projects that you're tackling these days um we typically are anywhere sort of between 1200 and 4,000 square feet has okay. kind of been the range that we've worked in. So if you get in the higher range, I mean, if you're getting closer to three or 4,000 square feet, you're still at about a million dollars construction budget. And then you'd probably be at about the same for a passive. You're going to do a construction budget as yeah. well too. And I've always said that it's not necessarily one single line item. It's sort of about the overall budget. And so where yeah. you spend a lot more money on a wall assembly or a certain assembly, you're saving on different things. But then there's also the mm-hmm. factor of later on regarding your consumption. Yeah. Like, and, and yeah. And it's, it's interesting, you know, the bigger buildings, sometimes that those costs show up differently. So um, a couple of years ago, we did a, a project for Trent university. So not a residential, but a, you know, a teaching building. Yeah. And uh, it was just under 5,000 square feet. And, you know, there, there was definitely a cost for making that building uh, hit sort of passive house levels of efficiency and airtightness. But suddenly at that size building, you really see, oh, but now we only need a, I don't remember the tonnage, but a much smaller heat pump to run this whole thing. Got it. And that was a $15,000 difference. And so, you know, ta-da, like we turned out to be even because because we needed a, you know, a much smaller heating and cooling system to run that building. And so, and then we needed less PV to make it net zero. And so, yeah, I think that that if you're if you're thinking holistically about costs, then you know often being more efficient is going to, if not pay back immediately, fairly shortly afterwards. Because you know, like this, the house that I, that that I'm in now, we got you know in 2012 we were able to get onto the the uh, Ontario government's uh, you know system for getting actual decent money back for putting yeah. PV energy on the grid. We make $2,000 more a year from the PV sales than our utilities cost us. So, <laughs> you know, this is a house that's it. actually 
paying us to live in it instead of it. us paying for utilities. And and so, you know, that, that's hard to factor into that first upfront cost because that's mostly what people want to see, right? Like, what's the sticker price on the house? But if you think about a sticker price on a house that has no utility costs and, you know, contributes some money to you every year, that's a really different scenario. But it doesn't, we don't really even have a way of talking about that. Like, nobody talks about overhead costs or operating costs as part of, you know, uh, a house purchase decision. Well, it's, the government does it for appliances, which is the first tag that I rip off when I'm installing them <laughs> and I don't really pay attention to them, but I mean, they should, that's actually a good point that you're bringing up, Chris, that they should factor that into the house that's being sold by the way. Yeah. Here's and your so cost. should banks, you know, oh, if I'm lending somebody sure. money, yeah. if I know that they don't have to cover $300 a month every month in utilities. And in fact, they're going to be getting some income like that. That should make a difference. You know, that should be a That's safer. Valuable. Uh, That's extremely yeah. valuable. I, I know yeah. that uh, you've been in your fair share. I've only been in a couple of passives, but there is a different feeling walking around that type of home versus walking around what I'm so used to seeing. Um, can you like, can you describe that? how that feeling is of that. I, I like to, for lack of a better word, I, I just, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of it. it. It feels more of a home. Like it feels yeah. more of a sweater. Like it feels comfortable. It just feels, it just feels better to me. Yeah. I think, I think there's a few things. One is that the, the, like the, the, the temperature inside is very constant, you know, yeah. um, it doesn't matter if I'm standing next to the window or I'm upstairs or I'm downstairs. There's no more than, you know, a degree or so difference between your foot temperature and your head temperature or like this end of the house for that end of the house. So it, it just, it feels really comfortable that way. I think one of the things that people don't talk about and don't, it takes a while to notice it, but sound, Yes. you know, uh, an airtight house with a decent amount of insulation is very quiet. You know, if you have windows that are sealed, like sealed tightly and 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 there's no sound coming in through air leakage um it, it's you know your separation from inside to out is really uh kind of remarkable i would say that's one of the things about kind of the the natural materials is it adds to that sound because there's nothing in this house that's perfectly flat you know it the wall this wall looks pretty flat i don't know if you can sort of see but but because it's plastered there's just enough texture that there's no sound bouncing around yeah, and yeah. you know i've got a tongue and groove wood ceiling that isn't flat either and so that all the echoiness of a of a typical house i mean sort of like your sound studio why why does it have that wood on the wall it just looks cool but it helps with the sound <laughs> it helps with the sound <laughs> so yeah. it does, it does the a few worst, duties yeah yeah, yeah the oh. worst possible thing for sound is absolutely flat drywall with 90 degree corners i mean that's echo city and that's you know kind of what we're used to um but um yeah the, and contributing kind of the, to a, a dwelling not feeling like a home yeah but yet that's the norm that's the majority yeah. of people are moving in buying purchasing uh that's what they're getting which is really yeah. kind of weird that they don't realize that there's an opportunity here for a much better home Mm -hmm. The other thing that people really notice at, at our open houses is people will come in and they'll go, this doesn't smell like a new house. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and we're proud of that because, you know, that new house smell is, it's toxic crap. It's like, chemicals, it's stuff you, yes. Yeah, you actually don't want to have around you, you know, like we've come to identify like the new car smell, the new house smell as like, 
fresh and new and like it's great because you just got this thing but it's like no those those are actually the toxic chemicals like leaving <laughs> these and materials you're breathing and, them in and absorbing them yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. and and you know a new house that doesn't have a new house smell that like that should be what you want that, that new house smell should be the the like you know sign of death <laughs> like, don't, <laughs> you don't want this uh, do you so the current house that you're in is 12 years old now yep and I'm just curious, did you do another blower toast? I'm just a blower door test that you, I, did, yeah, we did, did. at, at year 10, yeah. um, we had, uh, a former student of ours was, um, uh, you know, starting to be a, an energy auditor and needed to do whatever three blower door tests to, to get his certification. And so he came and, and it blew exactly the same. I think I love it. I love it. Uh, the first time was like 0.88 and the second time he got 0.81. So it was basically the same um, 10 years later. So we were pretty happy about that. Which tells you something about the construction of the building, right? Yeah. Well, it tells you that we're not relying on a lot of uh, sheet barriers as our as our air barrier. Like it's plaster. Yes. It's, you know, if there's a hole in this, I'm seeing it, you know, it's not, it's not hidden behind something. Um, so, you know, you can, you can really sort of, it's very visible if there is an issue, but if there's nothing visible, then there is no issue and it's just as airtight as when you built it. I want Chris, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, your beam uh, carbon estimator that you guys yeah. offer, right? So how did you yeah. guys come about that? Well, like I said, I got kind of, you know, went down the rabbit hole of what is the carbon footprint of the materials for this building. Um, we just wanted to really learn that about our own projects. Um, and I actually decided it was in 2016 that I needed to go back to school for a little while and concentrate on this. So I, I, uh, here in Peterborough, I went back to Trent university and did a master's where I kind of really did a deep dive. I collected all the product information that was out there on carbon footprint for materials. And I kind of took a couple building designs and I started, you know, saying, well, what if we use these materials to make this building, give it a carbon footprint? Well, what if I use this collection of materials on the same building and kind of getting, starting to compare, what a uh, like a high carbon footprint to low carbon footprint building looked like. And when I started presenting the results of that thesis out in public, people were asking, well, how did you do that? What tool did you use? And I was like, well, I didn't. I just made this spreadsheet and, you know, <laughs> built in all these calculations so I could get these answers. And, and the, the, the response was always, well, can I use that? <laughs> um, and the first my first response was no, because the spreadsheet's a mess and you wouldn't understand what you were looking at but it you know it made it obvious that people wanted to do this and because we kind of had now all the the information that was necessary um we decided to uh, to make it into a tool we were kind of kick-started by a local municipality here uh the township of Daryl Dummer wanted to offer a um a low carbon footprint uh incentive and so their their chief building official was the first one to really say hey if you can if you can put this tool out we'll use the tool to offer people uh, a rebate on their permit fees for making a low carbon building and so that kind of got the ball rolling and uh we decided to put it out as a as a free uh it's a free spreadsheet software and i think what what works about it is that you know as the as the main builder of the of the tool i'm also a builder i think you know it, so the the user experience you know as far as the software goes was designed around 
a person who spent his whole life building things yep. who isn't very software savvy. It's like, okay, I need to build this so that I understand it and I can use it quickly. And so I think, I think that it just, it works for a lot of people and, and it, you know, it's really straightforward for people who understand buildings. Cause it, it just. Once you get it, it speaks of, right to you. Yeah, like it speaks directly yeah. to you and you understand it right away. And I, yeah. I totally forgot Chris, that the, and I apologize at the very beginning. I mean, you've written seven books here. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> and you can find all the books on Amazon <laughs> or you can find them on your website. Uh, both. Yep. Okay. They're out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the tool, the tool is, I think one of the things that makes it unique is that I wanted, I wanted to be able to use it in kind of three different ways. I wanted to straight up just be able to compare materials against each other in the same category. So the way Beam works, if you're, say, in, interested in, uh, you know, bat insulation, you go to the bat insulation page, which is in the exterior walls tab, which, you know, where you'd expect to find it. And if you've if you've said I need X number of square feet of insulation at R something, you will see the carbon footprint results of every bat insulation that there's information for yes. at the same time and, and the answer. So you're not having to build a model and then get to the end of the model and then go back and say, Well, what if I change the fiberglass for mineral wool and then change it and then go back to the like it's all right there. So you can do those straight up material comparisons. You can also build a model just of a single assembly. So you can stay in the exterior walls tab and build, you know, people are interested, like what's the difference between 16 and 24 inch on center framing for carbon footprint? What's the difference between brick cladding and fiber cement cladding? Like, so all of those answers are kind of there. You can build them into then a whole assembly or you can build a whole house model and, and see, you know, what a whole building looks like, but it, you know, if from the get go, we wanted it to be able to be used in, in all of those ways. I love it. I, I'd love for you to share. I don't know if you will though, but <laughs> products not to use. And and I, I don't want to get in trouble or anything like that. But I mean, if we get in trouble, we get in trouble. I'll take the heat. But if there are, I, I've had other um, passive people on the show and talking about specific details and they were a little reluctant to share certain products until the mics were off. And then they told me a bunch of products and I was like, I thought so. I totally understood that. It made sense. Right. But I mean, if there's some products that you know that you want to share that like you shouldn't be using in building construction. Um, because I know that there's a lot of products in building construction that are the mainstream, but we shouldn't be using these products. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll preface that uh, and maybe take a little heat off by saying, you know, in our practice, we're, we never sort of have like a an absolute sort of like, you know, red list of yes. things. Yes. What we have is a, a bunch of criteria that our client helps us, you know, tells us what they're interested in, like, if their number one driving thing is a non-toxic building and maybe they're equally interested in like low toxic and high performance, you know, you're going to get a very different building than somebody who's like, actually, I don't care about the toxicity. Um, I'm happy with, you know, uh, you know, uh, code compliant level of energy efficiency, you know, but I want uh, like to create zero waste and, you know, like there's so many different there when people say like, Oh, I want a greener building. Yeah. That could, that could be all of those things. It is toxicity. It is waste. It is resource use. It is energy efficiency. It's indoor air quality. It's all of those things. 
so depending on how you order those criteria that the like the list of appropriate materials really changes yeah so um but i think you know for me foam-based insulations are problematic um from a carbon footprint point of view the worst of them are really bad the best of them are only as good as the worst of everything else so yeah. you know they're not great uh, i think the piece of that equation that 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 makes me not want to use them is they rely on pretty hefty amounts of flame retardants in them to stop them from being <laughs> fire accelerants which i mean the chemicals in them are fire accelerants yeah those flame retardants are some of the most persistent and uh, bioaccumulative chemicals on the planet um, you can find them in all of our bodies everywhere even if you've never handled the material I don't want that in my building. I don't want that in my environment. I don't want that waste, you know, in my landfill. So, you yep. know, to me, um, I try to avoid those. If somebody can come up with a foam that doesn't have, you know, a really low carbon footprint and doesn't have the toxic loading, you know, would I consider it? Yeah, maybe, but, you know, not so much today. Um, anything with vinyl in it, PVC, same kind of thing, like the the, the toxic loading to you as the end user through the whole production of that material, uh, the waste, all, like all of those things. Um, paints, like we, I think we've been fooled in this sort of no VOC paint language. Such that, a mislead, that, I know. Yeah, that these paints are healthy and yeah. they're absolutely not healthy or they certainly haven't been proven to not be unhealthy. They've just been proven to not have the VOCs that cause smog. And that's that's all the no VOC label means. It's not a health label, it's a it's a smog production label. And so you can have all kinds of dangerous to human VOCs in a paint that's labeled as no VOC, because if it's not causing smog, it's a no VOC paint. So I think those would kind of be some of my top uh my top materials that that certainly I want to avoid. And and it's you know, you see a lot of like win-win, sometimes win-win-win solutions in in building, and you also see some like lose-lose-lose. And for me, if it's a if it's a combination of you know, it's got a petrochemical base, so that my use of this material supports the whole petrochemical economy. Like I don't want that, yeah. uh, and it tends to have a higher carbon footprint, and it tends to have a higher toxic loading. So it's like those are the things that you know I don't want. And, you know, it, I've always been able to find, you know, completely reasonable replacements that have kind of like the opposite, the win-win-win. They're low carbon footprint and or carbon storing. They're not at all really involved in the petrochemical economy and they're non-toxic. So, you know, the more I can lean that way, those are my priorities. Um, but, you know, client by client, we kind of take those things differently all the time and, uh, so there, there's a lot of upfront research with you and your clients even before, you know, a shovel's put into the ground. And it's, oh, not, yeah, it's yeah. not so much about that, you know, that classic cola commercial where they pull out a faucet and build me a house around this, right? It's like we're beyond that. We're way yeah. beyond that. So you, you guys are having so many interesting conversations about the type of home that you mm -hmm. want to create here for this family. Um, yeah. And our first conversation is always, you know, people tend to if they want a custom build, it's because there's like a particular thing that's interested them. Like 
you know, we'll get the client is, I want a straw bale house, or I want a hempcrete house, or I want a solar house, or I want, you know, they're, they're kind of, there's a, a, a material or a technology that's grabbed their attention. And, and our way of working with clients is to say, okay, let's not talk about that. <laughs> like that's, you, we may end up building you a straw bale house or a solar house, but let's back up and, and find out why you're interested in that thing. Yes. Like what, what are the, those underlying criteria? Um, is it that you care about toxicity? Is it that you care about your materials coming locally? Is it that you, you know, you want a really efficient home? Like let's, let's dig and find those whys. Once we know those, they almost always, if you can get a good set of criteria from a client, the materials you pick, they pick themselves. Like yes. there's probably only one or two choices that are like, you know, at the high end of being non-toxic, but also affordable and available locally. If those are your three things, not very many things are going to fit in that Venn diagram. So you just, you narrow down all that product research by just identifying the, the sort of underlying needs and wants. And then it's like, well, of course, we're going to use this. It's one of, it might be the only thing that satisfies all of these criteria, or, you know, we might be choosing between two things because they both kind of fall in that range. I, I look at it more like there's a better selection of products to use when you're building this way instead yeah. of being bombarded with a bunch of marketing on a bunch yeah. of products that you'd clever marketing is clever marketing, but it still doesn't make a product great. Yeah, uh, that's a whole other story. But I, I'd love for you to share your experience with the building departments that you've dealt with and the inspectors and um, and the inspections, because uh, I know that I mean, and I'm not downplaying the building department or the inspectors, but they're not the most savvy when it comes to this education. I've only had one out of all the inspectors I've ever worked with that stayed there and asked me questions about certain things I was doing and, and about the building and I was building it differently. And, and he was, he was genuinely curious about it. He wanted to learn about it cause he wasn't seeing it all that often, but you yeah. guys are building homes that are go against everything that that department is generally building. And then yeah. same with the inspectors and same with the inspections. So yeah. enlighten us a little bit on that kind of process that you've dealt with in the last 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say it feels like it has definitely changed for the better in that time um the the whole kind of alternative compliance mechanism that i guess was around 2006 that came into the ontario building code that there there was like a formal alternative compliance pathway um and so a lot of what we have had to do is just get really good at knowing how to use that right and i i i completely feel for and understand where building inspectors are coming from when they're reluctant for these things. You know, they're, they're kind of taking on the liability for the entire municipality for yeah. decades to come in these decisions they're making. They've got a stack of plans this high, you know, I've never seen a building department that's not understaffed and, yeah, yeah. you know, people are frantically trying to like get permits out the door. So they want fast and they want easy. And like, I have to acknowledge that if I'm doing the weird thing, I'm causing this person a headache. So how do I cause them the least amount of headache? Yeah. And so we just try to really prepare. We try to anticipate their questions. We try to like not just bombard them with documentation, but but provide documentation, but like give them all the key takeaways from that documentation. You know, if they're concerned about fire, I'm gonna give you the excerpts of these five fire tests that have been done around the world. You can read them in 
10 seconds. And then I'll give you the 50 page reports, you know, in PDF, if you want the backup, but you know, it's like, how do I make this person's job as easy as possible, you know, to say yes, it's like, well, understand why they might say no. Understand, like, I have to understand the code, I have to know, not just, oh, you're going to care that about whether this material burns or might be moisture prone. It's like, no, I need to say to you, like, as far as like 9.36 point, you know, whatever the code number is, that specific reference where it's saying this has to have a, you know, uh, like a, a fire rating of 30 minutes, like, you know, let them know that I know the piece of code that they're going to find problematic. I've pulled it out. I've addressed it. You know, I've given them those numbers and, you know, just try to make it as easy as possible. Um, we got really good at that in our practice, but I think, you know, kind of goes back to our earlier point of why aren't more people doing this? That's the reason, you know, yeah. the, the actual on site construction, it doesn't cost that much more. It's not that it might cost less. It's not harder. It's not, but, but this stuff, the like convince the building inspector, convince the insurance company, convince, you know, the bank, all of those things, again, it's, and it's doable, but, but that comes with a bunch of time and effort cost and, I'm willing to do it because I want to, and because you know I want to be able to build the kinds of buildings like this for the clients that want them. But it's not the kind of thing that everybody's going to undertake. You know, if you have yeah. to add twenty hours of admin crap, you know, to get this through for somebody, not everybody wants to to take that on. Yeah, they want to spend more time on the countertops and you know, those products, yeah. things like that. But yeah. And that is the fun part of doing a house too. You know, like not, not everybody cares what's in the walls or behind the ceiling or, you know, we care, we care. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> we totally care. Lots of people listen to the show. They care. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, and, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but can we not build a whole subdivision this way? Using digital platforms in our industry is becoming more common, especially among the young folks, because it improves efficiency, prevents mistakes, and overall makes our lives as contractors easier. This is why we partnered with Connect Team, a platform built to manage, train, and communicate with your team. Connect Team's desktop version gives managers a live overview of the business to track work hours, create schedules, make sure the business meets compliance, and so much more. Employees just download the app to their mobile to clock in and out, share safety reports, and get updates all in one place, ensuring they've got what they need to perform at their best. Connect Team has a free plan and a 14-day free trial. Try them today by checking out the link in the show notes. Totally, yeah. Like, why haven't we? We should. This is Canada. Let's do it. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> we, have a very, we have a very strange innovation ecosystem in Canada, I'm realizing, you know, there are, um, I'm doing more work in the States now. And, and while there's, you know, we think of from here in Canada, we think of Americans as being more conservative. There's also way more innovation and excitement around yeah. innovation and money for innovation. Um, you know, why are there three really great prefab straw bale companies in Europe? Because the European Union was funding that kind of work 20 years ago, and it's finally come to fruition now in real companies that, that are cranking out products. Um, I, I attended a really interesting webinar from the, the Straw Building Association of China, and you know they got a mandate from the government five years ago, use more straw in construction. 
so, you know, they rewrote the codes, they set up R&D things, and five years later, there's factories producing, you know, millions of square feet of these straw wall products. Things just doesn't seem to happen like that in Canada. I think the markets are small, like, you know, the only place you might feasibly be able to, to do a prefab company is somewhere in the GTA, but you, you can't service Winnipeg from there. And, no. And... And even even here, our housing market is you know a fraction of what it is in some some other places. And then yeah, there's no not a whole lot of government support. Um, I know when we were looking to to sort of try to turn the the prefab straw bale into uh, more of a product, like you could get a twenty five thousand dollar grant to do a test or you know. But like there was no there was no like great pathway to you know say. Hey, the potential in in this you know country for doing this is really high. Like, let's put something behind it. It was all kind of like very small beans, and you know nothing that would sort of foster uh, a big a big innovation or a big change. Which is interesting uh, because you figure that a government that's kind of speaking the way they are speaking these days that they would be backing something like this. That it should be happening. We should be seeing communities being built this way. But it's not, I guess. But that's a whole other argument. Um, yeah, and you know, there's a really interesting kind of place where there's so much, especially around climate, that's like you know, liberal versus conservative. But the thing with with especially sort of bio-based building materials is it speaks to rural communities, right? Like, yes, maybe maybe they don't want to be making prefab straw bale wall panels in Manitoba for the climate, but it supports farmers, you know, it buys a byproduct from farmers at good value. Very good it point. Sets up a factory in a small town and it serves people, you know, in, in its region. Like that's a win-win from lots of different angles, not just a, a sort of climate angle. And I, you know, I would hope that we could have that conversation in this country where it's not like, you know, this against this. It's like, this is one of those things where it works like, we all sides. win if we yeah. if we do this well. I yeah. totally agree with you. I'd love for you to share some insight onto some trades that are probably just getting into the industry and maybe considering going down this path and focusing more attention on that. Because I do love having guests on the show talking about... I don't I don't want to say niche because I don't think this is a niche market. I think that it's growing really good, really well. Um, uh, what would you tell new tradespeople about getting into building passively and what to uh, prepare for? Um, you know, it seems right now that that by and large, you're going to have to do your own education. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of trades programs that are particularly, you know, forward looking and and sort of trying to train people for what's coming instead of what just was um and there's lots of reasons for that it takes a long time to write curriculum the people who you know are in that system got in that system once they've been in the industry for a while and so you know what they know is kind of like yesterday's buildings um so i think you know yeah be be willing to take some time, invest some of your own time to figure out the kinds of things that you're interested in, find the people who you can learn from that you can uh, ask questions of, maybe even apprentice with. Um, And I think, you know, what really interested and excited me through my whole career is, is like taking something that at the time was not 
ready for mainstream yet and figuring out how to do that like whether that was straw bale construction or earth floors or natural paints it's like the the i could see the potential in it but i could see that that i was going to have to figure out how to make it you know time and cost effective um and and that's really interesting and really rewarding but you're going to lose time and or money on your first few jobs right yeah. like you're not going to get it right the first time not not that it's going to fail but that but that it's going to take you longer you're not going to see the efficiencies until until you've done it and then gone oh <laughs> that wasn't very efficient but if i had done like this next time it'll be faster and so having that that enthusiasm for like next time I, I think is really is really important so chris you just described every tradesperson that tackles their first project and we all go <laughs> through that it doesn't matter yeah. if it's a traditional for a house or a passive house or any kind of house we all go through those lessons we all it's they're bumps and bruises that's all they yeah. are right in construction yeah. so yeah I, I wanted to ask you about uh which countries are actually doing really well I know Europe is is leading and doing some stuff, but are there specific countries that are actually thriving with this? Yeah, France is doing amazing things with, uh, you know, with bio-based construction. They have um, lots of of really great incentive programs. There's actually, uh, you know, as far as straw bale is concerned, there's actually a national uh, certification program in France. Like you literally can go train to be a, a straw bale installer plaster in France and be certified and licensed. And, um, and you know, there are a number of uh, earthen based uh, builders have the same kind of program in France. And then, and then on the other side, builders and developers are kind of rewarded in the French code system for using those materials. And so it kind of like self reinforces, you know, what a great one of the hard things Why don't we here have is that, that here? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the hard things here. It's like, so I'm going to work harder, learn longer to do something that you know i have to convince people one at a time that they want like it's a that's definitely not the pathway to (laughs) rapid expansion so um so the uk is you know has some similar has some similar uh programs as that um there's really cool things going on in germany so yeah that you know europe um in general um china too it can be hard to sort of you know find out what's going on there but but i'm constantly amazed at how quickly they sort of move and adapt there you know they came up with a a green building code in i think 2010 um but it's the latest version like seems to me like it surpasses everything that we're you know that we're We're doing doing here here. yeah and same you know that that sort of that the innovative materials space the training like you know I, i don't necessarily want that system of government but one thing it's good at is like make a decision put the money to it get it done i will agree with you on that they they are they are very good at that very very good yeah. at that yeah yeah and i think you know here it's unfortunate but the the trade associations just put the brakes on on so much that that you know it's and i think in places where you have their you know governments that are don't have to listen to them or who are, you know, willing to not listen to them or to like listen to them and talk to them and, and adapt. But here, you know, I just sort of see um, home builders associations and stuff, you know, always being the the heel draggers every time 
you try to make the code more energy efficient. It's like, oh, you know, I know it's going to cost too much. It's going to be too hard. Da, 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 da. And then sure enough, when the code gets updated, everybody figures it out and, and it was okay. And then the next one comes around. It's like, oh, we can't do that. We heal <laughs> drag. And then five years later, the code gets improved. It's like, okay, well, we did that. Like, yeah. but it, it just, that seems to be the cycle of like, you know, resist the change as much as possible. And I think, you know, that, that doesn't uh, help us, you know, move forward in a in a very good way. I think it's why we're often kind of like the last ones adopting things uh, in this country. Is it possible, Chris, to kind of create a, a hybrid where you can use some of the techniques on an existing rental project that you can implement to your mm -hmm. clients and go, you know, we get it. The house wasn't built this way to start off with, but this addition's happening. So yeah. maybe there's certain things that we can consider when we're doing the addition or when we're actually renovating, we're doing a full gut on the main floor or something like that. There's certain things that we yeah. can do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. I mean... You know, I think I mentioned the the hemp bat insulation earlier on. Like that to me is like a, that's a great. I love you know, that. Yeah, Reno um, material. Things like, you know, considering plasters instead of drywall, even just the natural finishes, like just good healthy paints. Like that, you know, that there's so much just repainting that goes on, and it's the thing that we actually interact with the most. Health wise, it's like the thing with the most surface area that that has the most influence on your space. So, just even paying attention to like do everything else conventional and just you know use a uh, healthy finish is is a great way to go. But yeah, I think I think lots of times people think about this stuff as like only for new construction, but I think there's a, a huge opportunity uh, for retrofits. Um, I'll I'll do a sales pitch on on uh, earth and floors again, like a great thing to put on over top of a crappy old floor like yeah. you don't even have to tear it all up put a you know three-quarter inch layer of earthen floor over what was there and it's a beautiful natural healthy affordable so yeah i think i think there's really not very many of these things that we've talked about that wouldn't work in the retrofit scenario straw bale might be one of them just because in bale form like it doesn't fit nicely into a but you know, the hemp bat, that that still is a nice alternative. It actually works really well for that application. Yep. So I've totally yep. entertained. Have Have you heard of anybody like you know? I don't know about Peterborough, but in Toronto, obviously laneway and and um, uh, auxiliary uh, dwelling units are becoming bigger and bigger. Uh, has anybody tackled the passive idea of doing a laneway suite uh, that way? Have you heard of anybody doing it? I, I've heard of certainly people doing really good versions of that, like on on the one-off custom basis okay i think it's tricky those those kind of auxiliary dwellings would work best if if they were if the same approach worked in different municipalities but right now there's enough differences between how they're regulated that you you can't say just like set up a little factory and start making adus that you can drop in anybody's backyard because yeah. In this town, it's got to be, it can't be higher than this or that. And it's got to be set back so far, can't be in front of or to the side. You know, like there's so many rules that you end up having to custom make them. But I think um, if if the approach could be more standardized, then, um, then yeah, like a little unit that's just dropped, you know, by crane into somebody's backyard uh, has a lot of potential. And making that in a in a factory setting allows you to get you know, the performance, the air tightness, all of that stuff, you know, 
done really well because you're doing it in a nice controlled condition. You can blow a door, test it before it ever leaves, and then it you know it's going to arrive and and uh, and perform right. Do you? Um, I want to ask you about tech based. I mean, th- there's obviously the creature comforts of any home, right? And everybody's always asking for the bells and whistles. Is it a? Is it a? a gentle conversation with your clients where they're still interested in having a lot of tech savviness in their house um, alongside with the passive side of the house? I think that really varies kind of person by person. Okay. Um, I think (laughs) I'm probably not the best advocate for that tech because I'm not very tech savvy myself. I feel like, and I also feel like if you get, if you get the basics of the building down, right, the need for the tech gets a lot smaller like smart thermostats are great when you want to come home and your house is really hot through the day but you want it to be cool when you walk in at 5 30 if your house is just going to be cool at 5 30 anyway i don't need that you know that thing to you know to necessarily do that um but i you know i'll admit that's that's definitely the gap in my own um my own knowledge and understanding is I is is kind of the the more techie side, and I can certainly see when it comes to sort of like load shaving and trying to get peak loads and you know shifting time of use for things. Um, all of that kind of stuff is really valuable. Um, I'm just not as up to speed on the ways to do that. What's working? What's not working? It's a it's another educational series. It's another book that you got to write. It's another. <laughs> there's a lot more stuff. To I'll share. let somebody else write that. <laughs> and I know that on the website, you guys do this. I mean, you guys, you basically have become a forum where you can get builders and designers and architects and engineers talking with each other and trying to figure out how to build better. Um, that's the whole purpose of it, right? Yeah, I think you know if we can be help kind of foster those conversations, that's great. That's something we'd love to do. I think there's lots of other places where that also happens and just, you know, showing up at those places. I know um, I, I go down to uh, the NESI conference, the Northeast Sustainable Energy Alliance, I think it is in Boston every year. Okay. What a great community of, of you know, uh, energy efficiency and sort of healthy home practitioners. Like it's, always like a super exciting, you know, three days uh, at that conference, because you get all kinds of people specifically from the, the residential world who are, and from all aspects, like you've got the designers, you've got the builders, you've got the energy raters, you've got some of the material manufacturers and just having really good conversations. Um, same kind of thing happens at, you know, some of the, the green building forums and and, uh, and events here too. Boots on the Ground is a great example of yeah. that, you know. Yeah. Uh, love, love events like that. Client-wise, there's no kind of stereotypical client here. Like this, there's a cross-section of everybody that's interested in this kind of home, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the case, isn't it? You've got younger people yeah. that are buying homes. You've got an older people, empty nesters, like whatever. you got all kinds of people that are interested in this. Yeah, yeah. And we also, you know, with Endeavor, uh, did a lot of work for um, not necessarily with homes, but in, in uh, for not for profits. So we did a lot of like community type building, uh, museum, a theater, um, outdoor ed centers, stuff like that, too, where those are really interesting, because in that case, it's not like a client, it's you know a client group. Um, and they often have really well articulated goals and criteria you know if you're uh, 
uh, an outdoor ed center trying to teach kids the best possible ways to be stewards of the environment, it's really easy to get, you know, to talk to them about a building with all the, you know, all the best stuff. Um, so, but yeah, you know, the, the clients can be really different. Um, I think there is, there tends to be like people who are really concerned about health, like their own, their own health, either they have sort of environmental sensitivities now or are very concerned about that. And, and the real sort of like energy efficiency kind of nerds, like I want the most efficient home. Um, those, those two, you know, we always try to talk to them about, you know, these other aspects, but those are always two sort of like strong motivating factors that we see in clients. It's, I really care about energy efficiency and, or I really care about the health side. I think, uh, I think the health side is critical these days. I think people quickly realize after the funny last few years that we had, how their homes weren't working properly and how mm -hmm. their homes could have been much better. Um, yeah. and so little things that you can't, can't be done, uh, which is yeah. great, but it's, it's always an uphill battle when I, I, I see certain products jump on that net zero marketing angle that I don't appreciate, which I get it. I understand that, but it's, it's, I guess just being in the industry, you get a little savvy to it and you're like, that's actually not a really good product and this should be a better mm -hmm. product. And, and I just want to see more yeah. of those better products on the market option wise. Yeah, it's that sort of like single focus. It's like if you if you put the blinders on and it's like, okay, it's energy efficiency product. is all I care about, <laughs> then there are some things that like fit that box. But if it's like I care about that and maybe some other things, like it's like, oh, okay, you know, some of those things don't have characteristics that are also positive in in all of these other ways. And I think that's just a human thing, right? We're we're very good at at like getting single focused yeah. um, and it's, it's always harder to step back and go, you know, make the picture bigger. Um, but I think that's in the building world, that's really important to do. Like what, you know, what are you missing? If you're just, if you've got your, your nose dialed so tightly into yeah, say an energy yeah. efficiency world um, or the health world or any, any one factor, you know, you can miss a lot if, if you, put too much uh, focus on that one area. It's interesting you bringing that up, Chris, because that's like, I, I would say that's probably the first lesson that Greg and Shervin taught me from Boots on the Ground was about being the system, understanding the whole system and being a mm -hmm. part of the collective. And I think every passive person or any building consultant person that I've had on the show, they have that same mindset. It's not a, just a, a focus on a single element. It's the actual entire structure, the build and what it's contributing and what one product starts and where the next product ends and things like that. So it's like you mm -hmm. have to understand everything which is really, yeah. it just becomes more like you to your point earlier about more education. We have to do more homework. We have to do more research. We have to understand this. And, and, and most people for the most part don't want to do that. They really don't want to mm -hmm. do that. They're just, give me the key. I want to walk in, but yeah, you know, you probably want a house that you really want to walk in and then, yeah. you know, live there for a while. Yeah. I think another part of it is just, you know, the, the, the partnerships, like we've been able to, make really efficient homes with really innovative mechanical systems. I'm not a mechanical systems designer. I don't want to go take that training. I'm not doing that training. But what I want to do is find the people I can collaborate with who are and like they get my goals, I get their goals. They don't have to know everything about what I do and I don't have to know everything about what they do, but we, you know, we can bring those two things together and and go, 
yeah, how do we how do we turn my stuff and your stuff into a system that that works? And you know, I don't want to know the finer points of you know that ERV and how it's balanced, <laughs> but <laughs> but I want to know that you know that and that you're going to do a good job and that you understand you know some other parts of the construction, and then we can you know we can put those pieces together. Do you get clients that uh, have a conversation with you about EMF? Do they ever yep. get into okay? So they, is that growing? Is that a growing segment of the, of uh, of the market, or are they? I feel like it, it. It, and I don't want to dismiss it this way, but I feel like it. It sort of had a. It's sort of like fad moment where people were really concerned about it. We okay. talked to a lot of people about it, and and less so now. And not that I think it's gone away or is any less real, but I think it. You know, it definitely had a moment of of like media attention and stuff that made people really think about it. Um, you know, I, in some ways the world has kind of gone in a way where, you know, there was a, a time not that long ago, the buildings we were doing, including this house, we made sure that that every room had a, uh, like a hardwired internet connection. Because if you're concerned about being surrounded by Wi-Fi all the time, let's build a house where you don't need it. Yeah. Now, none of my devices will work <laughs> with a with a hard connection and so it's like, what am I going to do for EMFs and Wi-Fi? It's like the, if I want a computer, that's, you know, I'm going to have the Wi-Fi. We can do things like put it on a timer so it turns off at night. But, you know, that that uh, that window on being able to sort of protect yourself from it but still have access has kind yeah. of closed. And that's that balancing uh, act, right, where you start talking about trying to be conscious and trying to be health. And then having the tech savviness, like having that tech connection uh, in yeah. your home as well, too. So it's a shame. And then the unfortunate thing is the moment that you step out of your house, then you're just bombarded with a, a sea of EMF, mm -hmm. right? Because we, we watch this. We see all the, the cell towers that are being parked in there, so many neighborhoods so close to homes and so close yeah. to places. So it's just like I know that more and more clients are having these conversations, but it, there is mm -hmm. a balancing act now because of these companies that are building these products that you're being forced to Wi-Fi. You have to go mm -hmm. that route. So, and even all my projects, I've always hardwired everything. I've always made the suggestion. Everything's exposed. Let's just run it. And, you know, the yeah. term future-proofing comes up a lot. Let's just run it. We'll just have it. It's there. Yeah. But now you got devices that don't work with that. So it's an interesting. I want to, before we get close to the 12 questions of, of construction, I just I know that um, you want to talk a little bit about uh, Embark report and and uh, the NRC uh, study and Nelson, all the other stuff that you guys are offering as well, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, just uh, a month ago, I put out a report with RMI that kind of took all of the embodied carbon work that we've done at Builders for Climate Action and kind of summarized it. But um, yeah, in all of those studies, we kind of took as built drawings from from homes that had been recently built in those different areas. Uh, so we did Vancouver and Toronto and Nelson, BC, and then also for a developer working in the Florida and the South Carolina, like the southeast of the US, and uh, and kind of ran them through Beam and got a sense. I think in total we've done over eight hundred houses now, so wow. we're starting to get a really good sense of what is the carbon footprint of like a normal house or a house at the high end of that spectrum or the low end of that. And so I think what's really stood out so far is that the average results from all of those studies fall within a really narrow band. So like there, there really is kind of like a, a normal or a typical carbon footprint. It sits like around 180 to 200 kilograms of emissions 
per square meter. Yeah. Um, we've seen results higher than 500. We've seen results as low as 70, but but that band kind of captures most of, of what's being built. Uh, but in all of those studies, the the homes from the, 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 the lower carbon footprint side of the study were significantly better than the average, but they were also just like homes that a builder was building. Like they were not, yeah. they were not setting out to build a low embodied carbon home. It's just kind of a, the happy accident of the kind of suite of materials they happen to be choosing were all from the lower end of the spectrum versus, you know, the high results. Nobody was setting out to build a house with a really high, you know, carbon footprint. They just, these are the materials they happen to choose and they happen to be from that end of the spectrum. Um, but at the low end, these buildings were sort of like 30, 40, 50% lower than average. And so what that says to me is if a, if a bunch of conventional builders are building at 40% less than average, everybody can get there fairly easily. Yep. Like it's not, yep. we, they didn't need new products. They didn't need innovative products. They didn't, there was no more cost. Like these are just people building homes. Most of them sort of like, you know, tracked homes and, and sort of developer built homes. So if if somebody's 40% less than average, there's that much low-hanging fruit out there for everybody. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the studies also show, like, if you if you do more, uh, you could get even better. Uh, but but that was what really stood out for me was just this this sort of, like, fact that, that there is all this low-hanging fruit out there and that it's not more expensive, it's not harder to do. You could do it with code compliant stuff. You can do it with stuff you can get at your local, you know, building supply yard. Um, and, you know, 40% is where the Canadian government wants us to be by 2030. So well, there's a bunch of builders out there who are already 40% less than, yeah. than average. So, you know, that's not a hard goal for this whole industry to think about being able to hit. I love it. It's amazing, Chris. Thank you so much. Just before we get into the 12 questions there, Chris Magwood here, Builders uh, for Climate Action, uh, www.buildersforclimateaction.org, and you can reach him at chris at buildersforclimateaction.org and also the Rocky Mountain Institute, rmi.org, and all over social media. You ready for the 12 questions? Sure. There's no right or wrong, and there's definitely no cash prizes. <laughs> What's your favorite construction word? Ah, I like plum. I gotta say, there's something. <laughs> it's satisfying when something is plum, but you know those words with the silent bees are always a. Uh, yeah, that's nice. That's actually a very yeah. nice word. What is your least favorite construction word? Lintel. <laughs> <laughs> what turns you on in construction? Um beautiful plaster work yeah yeah sometimes you got to go to europe to see it yeah yeah <laughs> what turns you off in construction um things that are made to look like something but they aren't that thing whether it's you know vinyl that looks like fake wood or you know this that looks like fake does stone it bother or, you too because i yeah. just thought i was the only one it just bothers yeah. me that you know like People tell you, look, it looks just like the real thing. And I'm like, mm, mm. yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? You don't have to give it up. We haven't been cursing up a Powell here on this show, but if you've got a favorite curse word. 
I don't actually. I can't think of one. If you no. don't, don't worry. That's a that's a past yeah. question. You don't have to answer yeah. it. Uh, what's your favorite vehicle in the entire world? I I love my Nissan Leaf. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm. I was. Uh, we bought it in 2018, and I just never failed to be impressed that like this is this is an electric car, but that notion didn't even exist 10 years ago that, <laughs> and, and it's does everything that any car I've ever had does and most of it better. And so, yeah, it, it blows me away. What's your least favorite vehicle? Well, you know, this is gonna, this is not gonna resonate with uh, everybody who's into construction, but like the massive diesel pickup truck. Ah, don't worry about it. Lots of guys who drive those trucks have said this, so don't worry about yeah. that. <laughs> Uh, what construction sound or noise do you love? We had a, uh, a really old school plaster sprayer, um, when we were doing a lot of straw bale work and it, it sounded like a bunch of school children kind of making fart noises <laughs> over and over and over. So it was hard to beat that for a construction sound. <laughs> Did you record it? Oh yeah, yeah? I, would <laughs> yeah. Love, I would love to hear. I have an idea what it sounds like, but I would yeah. love to hear it. What what construction sound or noise do you hate? Um, the the constant beeping of a laser level. Yeah, yeah. just find it. <laughs> just find <Yeah>. it. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt one day, Chris? Hmm. You know, I, I, I kind of have an interest in being a plumber, so I would I would attempt that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Why I've always enjoyed the plumbing parts of buildings that I've done, but it it strikes me as very satisfying. You know, containing water, like when you do something and the water doesn't spray out, you've done a good job. So. Yeah. yeah. What profession would you not like to do? I would not like to be a building inspector. That's a tough one. <laughs> Yeah, it is really tough. I uh, even even the times I've had hassles, it's like you got to give it to the people doing that work. Like it's tough and thankless, and you know, but but absolutely necessary. Yeah, it is. Last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at those pearly gates? Uh, welcome. Step into my beautiful straw bale home. <laughs> Of course it's up there. Totally up there. Chris, absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad that we connected. And, and sorry about last time, the misunderstanding, but I'm so glad that we had you. And, and, and you've educated the listeners quite a bit. And I hope more and more tradespeople get into this industry uh, and at least educate themselves and understand this industry and understand the possibilities that are behind this and that the market is, uh, they're asking for this. They're totally asking for this. Yeah. Okay, so cool. well, thanks. Thanks so much. Everybody, check them out. It's Builders for Climate Action. Website again is www.buildersforclimateaction.org. And his email is chris at buildersforclimateaction.org. And it's also Rocky Mountain Institute at rmi.org. Thank you very much, Chris. Yep, thanks. Bye. We're out of here, Angelina.